Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, take them out. Do you have any idea where we're going to be studying this morning? Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. We're uh, spending a lot of time in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So if you have your Bible, get it out and get it in front of you uh, this morning. Um, You know, sometimes eating fruit can become a problem. Generally, we think of it as a good thing, but sometimes eating fruit can be a problem. For people who know me well, they know that I, um, I, I eat large amounts of apples. It's just a thing. I eat a lot of apples. Um, and people around the office know that. I just eat a lot of apples. Maybe too many apples. I'm not sure. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, up at the store, you know, picking up some groceries for home. And of course, I picked up a healthy supply of apples because I eat a lot of apples. As, the, as I was putting everything through, you know, on the, on the belt to get up to the cashier, um, when it came time to the apples and I was standing there, she, she picked up the bag of, of apples and she said, did you mean to get this many? And I'm thinking, well, yes, I picked them out. I put them in the bag. I tied them up. I put them in my cart. I put them on the belt. Yes, I, uh, how else would they have gotten here? But it occurred that she thought there was something unusual about the number of apples that I was getting. And, and I felt she didn't know I could have been baking apple pies at home. I wasn't, but she didn't know that. But uh, it got me to thinking, is it possible that I eat too many apples? Because it is true that generally eating fruit is a good thing. I, many of us probably would would like to eat more fruit, but sometimes it is within the realm of possibility that eating fruit can actually become a problem. We're going to talk today about a story here in Genesis chapter 3 where eating fruit actually becomes a problem. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to repeat a little bit of what we read last week and then continue on. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat from from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, if you've been with us recently, you know that actually this is part of this series we're doing called 10 Words, a grand sweep of God's big story told from cover to cover in just 10 words. Not only can God's big story be summarized down, but you can tell it in just 10 words, and you can tell it starting from the first three chapters of the Bible. Now, most of your outlines are pretty well filled in for the next few weeks because of this drive-in thing, but there at the top, I've given you... Uh, seven blanks. And I thought this might be good time. I'm sorry I don't have any like Jeopardy music or anything to play. But I thought we might just begin with a little quiz where I would give you, uh, where I would give you 60 seconds to see if you can fill in at least the first six words that we've covered. So can we do that? Hum Jeopardy, whatever. Give me a honk when you're finished. Um, so try that right now. This is your 60 seconds. Can you, 
you're finished? Or, oh, she was working on it before the service started. Anyone else? Do? It's okay. You can work together, but try filling that in right now. The first six words, and then today we'll add the seventh in the ten words, telling God's big story from cover to cover in just ten words. Six words. First six words, fill them in. Work with your neighbor. Honk. Thank you. Honk. Thank you. hear another honk. I hear that honk. I see that hand. I hear that honk. Okay, we're just about there. All right. Put in your final answers there. Are you about ready? All right. Let's see if we've got it. The first word in the 10 words is the word create. What create means is that there's one true eternal creator God who has called into existence absolutely everything in the heavens and the earth out of absolutely nothing, and he created it all good and for his own glory. Second word, bless. Bless means that not only has God covered his creation, but he intends to cover our lives with his favor. And that means the good things of life multiplied and deep down joy that cannot be shaken. Third word, rest. God intends that our life would be a reflection of his life, filled with meaningful, rewarding work and stopping to rest and making space to breathe deeply and really live. Fourth word, complete. complete. I feel like we're struggling with that. Say that after me with feeling, complete. complete. Might want to work on that one this next week. Complete means this. The good world that God made at the beginning of the story is the blueprint for the good world that we will inherit at the end of the story, but times infinity, and that is a literal paradise in the presence of God where not only is everything good, but life is wonderfully complete. Fifth word? I feel like this side is is a little stronger than this side. Everyone say with feeling command. What command means is that God has given us in this life reasonable, understandable guidelines that by following them, we might experience his very best and avoid the very worst. Sixth word, lies. Say it with feeling, lies. Lies. For while God loves us and tells us nothing but the truth, Satan hates us and tells us nothing but lies in an effort to steal and destroy the good things that God has for us. The seventh word today is sin. Say sin. Sin. And sin is going to be a significant part of this story for the rest of the Bible. In fact, you properly cannot make sense out of the Bible. People have tried. It doesn't work. You can't make sense out of the Bible without this very important word, sin. Jesus Christ, his mission, the gospel, the cross, none of this makes any sense at all unless you understand what sin is about. Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, well-known verses. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Listen now to verse 12, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, 
Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sin. The Apostle Paul says here in these very important verses that God's great love for us, Christ's amazing death for us, justification, reconciliation, salvation, resurrection, life, all of this wonderful good news is predicated upon a foundational understanding of sin. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. The bad news is, folks, absolutely everybody sins. That is a tragic part of this big story in the Bible. This is a tragic, undeniable part of our story, the one that we are living out right now at this very moment. Now, Genesis chapter 3 is the prototype for what sin looks like. This is the first sin in the history of mankind. It will not be the last sin, though. Because when you break it down, what happened in the garden with God's good command, Satan's lie, the fruit, the choice, this is, in essence, how sin goes down every single time. So the story of sin always begins with a perfectly good desire, a natural desire, or passions, sometimes the Bible would call them. And the Bible says that, in essence, these basic desires, these sweet passions we have, fall in these three categories. The desire to feel something good, the desire to have something more, the desire to be something significant. In essence, everything that we have a desire for is to feel something good, have something more, to be something significant. And in the right context, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of these passions. In fact, God made us with these desires. So let's break that down just a little bit to feel something good. Feel something good like what? Like, since it's 1131, a delicious meal. That would be a desire to, to feel something good. So like a, a thick, juicy steak and a loaded baked potato and all starting with some fresh, hot piping from the oven bread and uh, perhaps pair that with a glass of red wine. I don't know, whatever sounds like a good meal to you, that would be a great example of feeling something good. All the way through, it just, a meal like that feels wonderfully good. Late night craving for pizza, that's a desire to feel something good. First thing in the morning, that first cup of coffee that you can't think straight till you have. Even something healthy like fruit, it's a little bit of an acquired taste, an acquired desire, but all of that, there's nothing wrong with that because God said from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But food isn't the only hunger that we are wired with to feel something good. Sexual passion. God has wired us with this good desire because this is kind of family programming. We won't go too deep into that, but this is good. God designed us for this. This is part of how we are wired. Experiencing a thrill, that is an expression of this desire to feel something good. Why in the world do people like riding screaming roller coasters or bungee jumping or skydiving or whitewater rafting? Why, for heaven's sake, would anyone do such a thing? Because it's a desire to feel something that, at least to them, feels good and exciting and thrilling. Laughing, hiking, singing, a million more things. 
What scratches the itch for you may not quite scratch the same itch for me, but God made us this way with a desire to feel something good, a desire to have something more. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. You probably have some stimulus money that just hit your bank account, or maybe you've got a tax refund that's on the way, and part of what you are thinking about is something you'd like to have. Maybe not with all of it, but at least with a piece of it, you're thinking, there is something I'd like to get. It may be something utilitarian. There's a new weed whacker that you would like to put in your garage. It may be something elaborate. You would love to have a second home on the ocean in Cancun. It it might be something gadgety. You would like a new Apple HomePod on the counter. It could be something nerdy, something geeky, like a, a theological dictionary set. It's a thing. There are nerdy, geeky people who actually think about how nice that would be. But whatever it is, whatever your thing is, it's natural to want something a little bit more. Feel something good, have something a little more, the desire to be something more. Everybody wants to be recognized as significant in some way, to be recognized by your children as a loving mom. Be recognized in your industry as a successful salesman, to be honored as a good student, to be remembered as a faithful Christian who pointed others towards Jesus. We'd all like to be good at something, remembered for something. And sometimes these desires can get intertwined together. Like you have a desire to have something more. You would like to have a cabin up in the mountains to the north, have something more. And you will feel something when you're there. You'll walk amidst the cool air and smell the pines. And you will feel something good that is like the stress that is going out of you. And a desire to be something that your children and your grandchildren will gather and make memories there. So much so that after you are gone, that will be part of your legacy, that family gathering place. Have something more. Feel something good be something significant, and it can all be wound up together. But the major point here is that these underlying desires, these passions, are all perfectly good. We are wired with them, and we are wired with them because God has put them there. The problem begins when these perfectly good desires start to get twisted by a lie. And who is it that lies? Satan lies. And how can you tell when Satan is lying to you? Because his lips are moving. That's how you can tell. Satan lies. And in this lie, he will always begin somehow with something along the line that you are getting shortchanged. You're getting shortchanged by God and his ability to get you the good things that you are desiring in life. Somehow the lie says if you keep playing by his rules... If you keep living according to his guidelines, if you keep trusting in his promises, you're not going to feel as good as you want to feel. You're not going to have everything that you possibly could have. You are not going to become all you could otherwise be. It always begins with a perfectly good desire, twisted by a lie, and as a result, it gets focused on the wrong thing. And this is the most simple Bible definition for what a lust is. You say, what is lust? Lust is this. A lust is when we take a perfectly good desire and we point it in the wrong direction. A lust means trying to get the right thing in the wrong way. 
In Genesis chapter 3, there was absolutely nothing wrong with eating fruit. This was the life that God had designed them for. And this was an unthinkably paradise-like life for them to think. Every day they would get up and they would eat by simply picking their next meal off the tree. Unthinkable, unending fruit. It was a perfectly good desire. It just turned into a lust when that desire got matched up by looking at the wrong tree. Verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that is, wanting to feel something good, and when she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, I would like to have it, and that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, that is, if I were to eat it, I'm going to become something. I want to feel something good. I want to have something more. I want to become something more. Nothing wrong with any of these things. Certainly nothing wrong with eating fruit. It was just the right desire pointed at the wrong tree. Anybody else ever been there before? It's the right desire. Nothing wrong with the desire. It's just not supposed to be pointed at that tree. Now, if this is the most famous temptation in the Bible, what would you say the second most famous temptation in the Bible is? Maybe Jesus in the wilderness, or maybe that's the first and the second. These have got to be the most famous temptations in all of the Bible. Luke chapter 4, for instance, tells about Jesus. Remember how that story went down? Jesus had been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days pretty significant amount of time. And the devil came to him and said, tell me that some fresh baked bread wouldn't taste really good right now. You know, when you go to lunch right after the service, and I'm sorry that I'm talking about food so much, but you know, when you come and and they say, we'll get you some water, would you like me to bring you some fresh bread? And you're like, yeah, yes, of course. So 40 days he's been fasting. He says, tell me that some hot piping, fresh-baked bread wouldn't taste good about now. Why don't you just say the magic words? You know how it goes, a la peanut butter sandwiches, and turn these stones into some bread. Wouldn't that feel pretty good? Wouldn't that hit the spot right about now? But when Jesus wouldn't take the bait, then he said, well, how about this? And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says to them, how about if I give you something more? In fact, he says, how about if I give you everything more that can be had. All you got to do is bend the knee to me once. Come on. Make an exception once. Fudge once. Who cares? We're out here. Who will know? I'm not going to tell anybody. Are you? When he wouldn't take the bait, the devil said, well, then how about this? And it says that he took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and with thousands of people certainly milling about below, he says, why don't you throw yourself off of here? Because you know, and I know exactly what will happen the minute you do, out of the sky will come screaming angels, and they will catch you before you hit down. This will be viral and TikTok in 60 minutes, and by the end of the day, you will be Jesus Christ superstar. You will overnight be something. See, Jesus had all the same desires, feel something good, have something more be something significant, but with this lie, the devil tried to get him to point it to get the right things in the wrong way. And so Luke concludes, when the devil had finished every temptation, now that didn't mean every possible variety of every temptation in the history of the world, but every basic temptation that you can be tempted with, 
to feel something good, to have something more, to be something significant. When he finished everyone, he departed from it. That's why Hebrews says he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. Same basic human desire that we're wired with, feel something good, have something more, be something significant. The fundamental difference with Jesus is that he always, without fail, never ever bought in to the lie. The underlying desire is not wrong. It's wrong when we, encouraged by the lie, try to experience the right thing in the wrong way. So we take sex, created to be good, but we run with it in the wrong way and we become immoral. We take food and we become gluttons. We take wine and we become drunks. We take leisure and we become obsessive and self-focused. We take possessions and we become selfish hoarders. We take the normal desires that God has given us to see and to enjoy and to feel the good things that God has made for us and we become greedy consumers gobbling up more than we could ever need in ways that were never intended. So when does a lust turn into a temptation? The answer is the minute we encounter the opportunity. That's when a lust turns into a temptation. It was a perfectly good desire that Eve woke up with that morning, hungry for breakfast. It turned into a lust when she started looking at the wrong tree. That lust turned into a temptation the instant she realized this was a moment of opportunity. Adam's standing right there. He's not saying anything. He's not getting in the way. God's not due to show up until later on in the evening. And plus, with this many pieces of fruit all over a huge tree like this, who could possibly seriously even notice if one was missing anyway? Who counts the fruit? Worst case scenario, nothing happens and no one will know that one piece of fruit is missing. Best case scenario, the snake knows what he's talking about. And my life gets a massive upgrade from already good to way, way better. A perfectly good desire, twisted around by a lie, end up pointed at the wrong tree. That's lust, meets up with a moment of opportunity. That's temptation. And by the way, it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus, it says, was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Being tempted is not a sin. The question is what you do in the face of that temptation. You are a human being. It's not your fault the way you are wired. Men, you may be driving your car along on a warm day and notice an attractive woman walking along the side of the road wearing a very small amount of clothing. The immediate thought that goes through your mind is not your fault. Looking in the rearview mirror for a second look is your fault. The immediate thought is not your problem. It's what you do with it. It's not your fault when you inadvertently hear someone share a juicy morsel of gossip. It's your fault when you act on it to pass it along. It becomes sin the instant that we act on it. Here in Genesis chapter 3, he says, You're not going to die if you eat from the tree. That was a total lie. His lips were moving. In fact, to the contrary, you're missing out by not eating from this tree. Because God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him and you're going to know good and evil for yourself. And when the woman saw 
that the fruit of the tree was good for food. And when she saw that it was pleasing to the eye and she saw that it was desirable to gain wisdom, become something more, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Not sure exactly what to do with that. Adam's been there the whole time. What's Adam doing? Like, here, Adam, eat some of this. Okay. I, I don't know what he's doing the whole time. I don't have a good answer. All right. In the words of the Apostle James, he says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. There's absolutely no way these two could have possibly known the utter devastation this action was going to bring. Oftentimes, sin is like that. We look backwards and say, if I could have possibly known the utter devastation it would have brought, but we don't always know that. But their children and their grandchildren and their children after them, the entire race of humanity, the endless corruption that is now going to come seeping into this paradise of God. While they could not have possibly known, still instantaneously they did have the sense that this was going to mean trouble. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together, fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. It has never dawned on them before this moment that this is somehow a problem. Never a need before to camouflage, hide, duck, cover. Suddenly they realize, uh-oh, I think this is going to be trouble. We're going to unpack that more next week. The devastation, the brokenness, the death, the curse that sin brings about. But just like it usually is with us, the sense of how we've been cheated when we buy into the same old lie usually comes upon us painfully quick, even with the taste of the fruit still in our mouth, already we're beginning to feel sick to our stomach. And the devil, who was just so full of fun ideas a moment again, has slithered away like lightning and he's nowhere to be found, and we're the ones that are left exposed out in the open, twisting in the wind, desperately looking to stash the evidence and cover our tracks, feeling so stupid and weak to have been sucked in again by such an old lie. Satan can work the con a million different ways. He's been doing it a long, long time. But at the end of the day, it always boils down to one basic lie. Somehow, if you trust in God's promises, somehow if you follow what he tells you to do, you're going to end up missing out on something better. And with the sick aftertaste of the fruit still lingering in our mouth, there is this growing sick feeling in the pit of our stomach that we have once again bought in to the same old lie. Why would any relatively intelligent person buy into the lie anyway? Certainly people like us who know God and know his word and know his promises, why would anyone ever buy into the lie? Here are some of the lies I've bought into before. Maybe you've bought into the same ones. My top list. Buy number one, I buy into the lie that I can't help it. 
I mean, I wish I could do what God says I should do, but it's over my head right now. I can't do it. I'd like to. It's not possible. Except God would not call you to do anything that he would not fully equip you to carry out. Except the Bible says no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God loves you and tells you the truth. Satan hates you and tells you a lie, like you just can't do it. I bought into the lie that it won't hurt me. Probably because I'll be so discreet about it, no one will ever know, or at least... The right people will never know. And even if someone does, the consequences can't be that bad. God loves you and tells you the truth. The truth is that the wages of sin are death. The the truth is that the consequences of rebellion are sorrow. But the lie says it won't really hurt me. I buy into the lie that it doesn't really matter to God that much. I mean, he says it, that would be best case scenario, but It's really not a deal breaker with God. But God's word says that when I sin in this way, I grieve, pain, wound his spirit. When I want to feel spiritual about it, I buy into the lie that says his grace is bigger. He'll find a way to get over it. He always does. And yes, God's grace is unthinkably big. But Hebrews 10 says that someone who would willfully march towards sin, that they know to be wrong, whistling the tune of God's forgiveness on the way there, is trampling underfoot the Son of God and the precious blood that he spilt. I can't help it. It won't hurt me. It doesn't matter that much. God's grace is bigger anyway. That's my top list of lies that I've bought into. Do you know what's on the top of your list? Because we have all more than once bought into a lie. You're better off knowing what your favorite lies are than being in denial that you are susceptible. For when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, she saw that it was pleasing to the eyes, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So what happens now? Well, it's not good. And it's not going to unfold all at once. The consequences of sin rarely do, but it's not good. And this sin now is going to be with us to the very end of this big story. Sin is not going to be done away till we get to the very end and that new heaven and that new earth that is created for us where not only will we be free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but in that day we will be free from the very presence of sin itself. But until we get to that point, sin is going to be a part of this story and it's not good. But here's the point, God's big story that we're learning about in the Bible and the good news about Jesus, it's not going to make sense unless you can grab a hold of this tragic reality that every one of us knows called sin. And if we're honest enough to admit it, every single one of us who is here this morning knows what a lie sounds like. 
And every one of us here knows what a lust feels like, and we know what a temptation looks like, and we know what a sin goes down like, because every single one of us here has been there. Some of us sitting here today were spectacular sinners who have done it with great flair and imagination. Some of us here today are extremely boring sinners who have done it in the most pedestrian of ways. Some of us are notorious, infamous for our sins. Some of us have managed to keep our sins impressively confidential. But every single one of us knows what it's like to buy into the lie and to drop God's good to reach for something we hope will be better and then kick ourselves for doing it even while the sick taste of the fruit is still in our mouth because we've all sinned and we've come short of the glory of God. We all have. It is part of the story that we know. In fact, it's possible that you're listening to me today and all of this has been somewhat awkward because even as you've come in here, you have carried with you the burden of a yet unconfessed but also undetected sin. And you're carrying that burden with you. And even as we go through this, you try to laugh at the right places and to not give yourself away lest someone close to you might begin to pick up that you're carrying it with you. How would they know? But still there is that sense. This is awkward for you. All I would say to you is because God loves you, he tells you the truth. The truth is this. If you will confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And my encouragement to you would be to take God up on his word. Do not take that burden with you one more mile. Do not carry that lie with you one more day. God loves you and tells you the truth so you could experience his best. And and if you've fallen off of the path, then simply confess it, get back up on the path, and start all over again. That is the best advice that I could give you today. Now, if you have never surrendered to Jesus and in a holistic way experienced his forgiveness and his grace to become his forever child, then you ought to do that without delay. You ought to confess your sins. You ought to receive not only his forgiveness, but receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and become family with him together. But if you already belong to him and you're carrying sin, get right with God because it only brings death, destruction, and brokenness. It never brings anything better. And if you get back up again, here's what I say to you. At the end of the day, your story with Jesus will be defined Not by how many times you've fallen down, but how many times, by the grace of God, you got back up again. So all I would say today is, by the grace of God, get back up again. Confess your sins. Renew yourself again. By the Spirit of God, commit yourself to do it differently this week than last week, to do it differently tomorrow than you did yesterday. At the end of the day, your story of following Jesus will be defined by not how many times you fell down, but how many times, by the grace of God, you got back up again. Get back up again. So Heavenly Father, we're gathered here today as your people, and so you know us. So you know that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit, 
we are defined as sinners. In our own right, that is all we have to bring before you. So you know the failures of all of our individual stories. And we know that it all roots out of Adam and Eve and it's infected humanity ever since, but we have all participated. And yet by your grace, we approach you as those are holy and righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, set apart by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, transformed day by day into your glory and away from the corruption that we knew before. Not only are we set apart as holy, but we are becoming holy. Lord, you know that we have brought some sin in here today. Some of it is hidden sin of the heart that we've acted on. Some of it is sin of the words we've said. It may be sin of the lifestyle. It may be sin of greed. So many things could define us, but we brought sin in here. And we bring this and put this under the blood of Jesus Christ. We confess it before you openly, receiving your forgiveness again and committing ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit that tomorrow will be different than yesterday was. And we say these things not because we're trying to earn anything. Your grace has given it all to us freely. But because we know that this is what pleases you. We know this is what brings good and blessing into our lives. You've told us to walk in this way. And we know that you love us and you always tell us the truth. Thank you for your forgiveness even in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.